Welcome to Meaning It. Yesterday, in parallel to the COP, there was another important meeting where the CEOs of the UK's major media brands got together and they pledged to increase their coverage of the climate crisis. Sounds good, but what does this pledge really mean? To provide more of the same narrative? Or will they now use their extended coverage to move public opinion towards understanding what the real game is that's going on, the real game that caused the climate catastrophe? My guest this evening is the outspoken journalist and author Donahoe McCarthy. He's a penetrating critic of the billionaire media, and he's also been a tireless environmental campaigner for over two decades, including more recently with Extinction Rebellion. But more surprisingly, perhaps, he's also been a politician. In fact, the former vice chair of the UK's Liberal Democrat Party. One concept I know he feels very strongly about is the Overton window. Here's a reminder of what exactly the Overton window is from the McKinnock Centre, which is where Joe Overton first came up with this important concept. The Overton window is a model of policy change. And the Overton window describes one big thing. Ideas that are inside the Overton window are ideas that are politically safe. The public is ready to accept them. But ideas that are outside the Overton window are ideas that might be too radical for the public to accept. And any politician who supports ideas that are outside the Overton window today risks finding himself getting defeated in the next election. Anything that changes the public's perception of an idea can shift the Overton window. Things like think tanks, the media, entertainment, the crisis, or historical events. Anything that gets the idea out of the open so that it can be discussed and debated has the potential to shift the window. There's a common misperception about the Overton window, and that is that politicians themselves move the Overton window. That's backwards. What politicians are good at is detecting where the Overton window is and reacting to it at any point in time. The Overton window cannot tell you if a policy is good or bad. What the Overton window does is tell you what policies are on the verge of possibility. So Donica, what makes you um, say that the media are climate wreckers? Maybe the worst climate wreckers. What's the media got to do with it? Well, I would argue in any democratic, in any society, there are four pillars for the fossil fueled economy. Those four pillars are government, banks, civil society, business and the media. And I would argue that both all four pillars are important to the fossil fueled economy. And if if we are to tackle it, the most important and powerful one of those four pillars is the media. Because the media are what gives social permission for the fossil fuel economy. It provides the social and political permission for government to act or not to act. And it provides the same permission for businesses. It is my theory after 30 years of involvement as an activist, as a campaigner, as a politician, as a media person, as a writer, that the most important pillar we need to deal with is the media. It is my opinion that if we got the media on board globally, the global corporate media on board the way they should be, as they were in Second World War, 
and this is more serious and more threatening than the Second World War, that the other three pillars, banks, oil corporations and government, those three pillars would fall into line almost within a year. So therefore, I, I believe that this is the most important thing that we need to pay attention to. So the climate movement. And I'm arguing that we have left out the fourth pillar. We look to the media as supplicants. We beg them to give us coverage. We invite their reporters, but we never see them as a power, a pillar of power in our in our society. And I would argue in Britain and actually nearly any country in the world, they are the most powerful uh, tool that we have ignored. And unless we actually, as a movement, redress that failure, we're not going to do it in time. And and how how is this power expressed? How does it influence all these other groups? Sure. Well, you know, the, 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 it's, the media is referred to as the fourth estate for good reason, because actually they are the gatekeepers to the information that the public makes its opinion on and shapes um, public and shapes public opinion. Public opinion shapes how people vote, how people vote shapes governments. And to actually give you a taste of the power um, that they have, recently um, during the during the during the COVID emergency, Dominic Cummings was invited to give a speech, sorry, to give evidence to the select committee in Parliament. And he said one of the real problems with Boris Johnson was he didn't pay attention to the public, he didn't pay attention to his MPs, he didn't pay attention to his advisors. Who he paid a thousand percent attention to, he said, was the editorials in the Mail, the Sun and the Telegraph. That's not me saying it, it is one of the highest advisors in our government. Now if you think through the consequences of that, it means that the core source of power in our society is that media. Now people talk about other media, social media or the, or the BBC or independent media, but the power of the billionaire media in the United Kingdom is staggering because they shape social, social media and they also shape um, <coughs> the, um, the coverage in the independent press and in the BBC. I have been on many, many BBC programmes where what happens in the, mor in the mornings, the producer comes in, opens up the billionaire tabloids and papers and says, what stories shall we cover today? Or they, they, they listen to, um, they read the paper and then the questions are shaped by them. And so you will have, so for example, the, the, the media a couple of days ago and loopy about planes, the media flying to, to the COP. This is the most important conference in history. It's the, the future of humanity is at stake. And what are we talking about? The private jets that went there, access for one person and a croissant. Rather than actually, is the government actually tabling the measures that needed, needed to save us? Have they got the credibility to us? Have they got the crack record to deliver a successful COP? That isn't hardly ever being discussed because it's shaped by the tabloids who have an agenda that's significantly against taking action on climate. Could you say something more about uh, the billionaire press? Because you're talking here specifically about the UK uh, ownership of the press and this is, is going out to the world. Is this comparable 
in other countries or could, could you explain a little bit more about the press here and also about what happens elsewhere? Well, in the United Kingdom, um, around 70% of our newspapers are owned by three billionaires, all of them offshore and all of them right wing with a significant uh, right wing agenda. So that really is, is, is one of the most powerful political forces in the United Kingdom. But as you quite rightly say, this is not unique to the United Kingdom. Australia, 70% of the, of the media is owned by one billionaire, Murdoch, in, the, in, in, in Australia. In, in the United States, you've got you know, CNN's owned by billionaires, the, uh, the, the newspapers in the New York Times owned by a billionaire family, the Washington Post is owned by a billionaire, and obviously Fox News and Wall Street Journal is owned by Mur the Murdochs. But it, it is a, it is a, it is. A, I've spoke to um, an international audience recently, and I, I said there is. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a systemic flaw in democracy, in that um, the elite one percent are nearly always able to buy the media, and they always do, because they actually are very aware that by owning the media. You control the Overton window of what is acceptable political debate in any society. Could you say a bit more about the Overton window? Sure. So the media will, 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 will um, the Overton window in relation to, to the media and, and debate is that they will define the parameters of what's acceptable debate and what's not acceptable. So, for example, over the last two months, um, it was it's been unacceptable really to express support for insulation rebellions sorry insulation britain's direct peaceful direct actions so they shaped they shaped the the the, the overton window that the media discussed it on so the the tabloids went this is terrible this is terrorism this is awful this is poor people can't get to work actually quite often it was like one junction in london there are eleven thousand junctions in london but you had the BBC ranting about it, you had the ITV ranting about it, you had the radio stations ranting about it, because that was the Overton window dictated by the editorials from the, the Sun, the Mail and the Telegraph. So that's how they control that um, narrative. Um, an, another way they control the narrative is that they have said very clearly in the United Kingdom that the Overton window on tackling climate change has to be not cost us anything and it doesn't have to impact on people's ordinary lives. So Boris Johnson says, oh, I'm committed. We're one minute to midnight, but I'm not going to have any hair shirts. We're not going to do, impose on personal freedom or personal choice. So if you want to, to fly 10 times to Australia next year, we're not going to interfere with that. That's how the Overton window on climate is controlled in that way. But as you, but internationally, so almost every country, every democracy you go to, most of them you'll find to a certain extent the media is owned by the 1%. And that has huge implications for, for climate, it has huge implications for democracy, it has huge implications for the left-right uh, debate, um, human rights, workers' rights, environmental rights, etc. You're saying, in effect, that the media is acting as a kind of PR agency, but there are actual PR agencies, and there are also think tanks that are really just masks for yeah. lobby groups. Yeah, I mean, when I when I talk about the media being the fourth pillar, I, I mean it in a holistic way. So when I talk about the media, I mean <clears throat> lobbying firms, I mean advertising agencies, I mean um, the uh, the broadcast media, the telephone media, the sorry, the uh, 
television media, but also obviously online media. So it's holistic. Yeah, and you're absolutely correct. There are billions being spent, but actually the relationship between the think tanks and the PR agencies and media is, is, is really, really tight. So, for example, um, the, the policy exchange were hired, we don't know by who, to produce a report on Extinction Rebellion. The policy exchange is a, is a well-known think tank. It's a well-known right-wing think tank in the United Kingdom whose funding is not transparent. So how it works is, let's say I'm an oil company, you know, and I see Extinction Rebellion are becoming very successful. The first two rebellions were public emanation. It was swept the world with excitement. There was a really positive response to it. It was a party atmosphere. It was positive. It was colourful. It was different. It was dramatic. And it was impactful. So what do you do? You have, if you are the, the oil industry, how do you deal with that? So one way of dealing with it is to hire somebody to produce a report saying that they're extremists and that they are allied to terrorism. And so a report was commissioned, we don't know by who, by the Policy Exchange, and they published that report, which was called Extremism Rebellion, and went on about how extreme we were. And it tried to make that implicit reference that we were allied to terrorism. And that's where the, the language of extremism, terrorism, applied to Extinction Rebellion started. So that report was published. And because the those think tanks have access to the right-wing media, it's like a nexus. So the Mail, the Telegraph, the Sun will always publish their 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 works. But what makes me really angry is that the, the independent and um, other broadcast media also cover those reports, despite the fact that there is no clear funding about who is responsible for commissioning them. So that report was commissioned by, who wrote it was an ex, I can't remember his name right now, but he, he was a, a former senior policeman in the Metropolitan Police who was kicked out for corruption around the, the, the Stephen Lawrence case. He oversaw the spying on the family of that murdered young man. And for that, he was thrown out of the police. And he was the person who commissioned to write this report. And nobody mentioned that in the coverage of the report. And the BBC uh, broadcast that, the coverage of the, uh, the findings of the report. And that, in my view, started the media um, frenzy that Extinction Rebellion are extremists and we're eco-terrorists. And that's how you frame the debate. And so that then goes into Parliament. And then Parliament, we have a Home Secretary who will respond to that language, will use that language, and then justify that for, to introduce punitive laws to crack down on peaceful climate protectors. That's how, how malign the system is. It's really chilling. And it's untransparent and it should be illegal. Now, what I find really strange was that um, when we staged our first protest for Extinction Rebellion, when I got arrested at outside the BBC uh, around two and a half years ago, um, when we met the senior management at the BBC, you know, we did the obviously what we, you know, trying to um, lobby for the increased coverage of, of the climate emergency in proportion to the level of threat it poses to humanity and for actually to be um, integrated into all aspects of the BBC's coverage. That was a normal lobbying conversation we would have and we did have. However, the only issue that they got angry with us on, and I found very strange, 
Well, the, the meeting was a week after the policy exchange report had been published and was covered in the media, including the, on, on, the, on the BBC Today programme. And I made a request. I said, this is a report smearing us, captured right across the media. And we had no opportunity to know who is smearing us. And you don't know who's smearing us. And for all we know, this could be Exxon or BP or Shell, who have hired a hit gun, hitman, to destroy us. And you're covering it without any accountability. And the request I made was, in future, could the BBC undertake not to broadcast reports from think tanks if the funding isn't transparent? So the, the response from the senior um, executive was got angry. He said, absolutely no way are we going to do that. He got really wound up and angry. I was going, that doesn't, that's why? Why would a senior executive in BBC get so angry at somebody asking him a reasonable question in a, in a democracy that you only broadcast stuff that's attributable? That you don't broadcast smear reports by anonymous sources attacking peaceful protests or peaceful groups or peaceful advocacy groups in, in civil society. That's, that's, to my mind, being complicit in destruction of civil society. And that's not the role of the BBC. So first of all, I'd like to say that um, the BBC, I think, has improved significantly on its coverage of climate since Extinction Rebellion started protesting outside their offices and our rebellions happened. There is now a climate section on the front page of the BBC website, which wasn't there when we started, and, the, and they, they have improved. It's not perfect, but they haven't. It's, it's better. So let's acknowledge that. And I think Extinction Rebellion needs to take a bow for that, for the pressure, because nobody was actually drawing attention to the lack of coverage by the BBC on the climate emergency, on which is an existential crisis for all of us, until we started doing that. And I think that's a success that we ought to say great. However, on the wider issue of the BBC, of it, where it's getting worse, is um, the billionaire media, i.e. Murdoch, the males, the Murdoch, um, Rothermere and Barclay, who own the, the tabloids, they've had a clear agenda for around 20, 25, 30 years to destroy the BBC. Murdoch, it's top, one of Murdoch's top aims is to get rid of the BBC, replace it with Radio Times, replace it with Talk Radio, Talk TV, replace it with his newspapers. And he has bit by bit set out an agenda. I remember there was a, a speech given by James Murdoch at the uh, television um, uh, festival in, in Edinburgh around eight, eight, nine years ago, where he laid out his demands. And one by one, those demands are being met. Cut the funding radically cut the ability of the website to, 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 to provide in-depth coverage, um, gradually uh, restrict its ability to, to um, have a, a wider coverage on, on politics. And it's, it's, it's extraordinary watching how, how it's happening. We now have a government that basically was elected with the backing of Rupert Murdoch. And so therefore, very clearly, Boris has just appointed Nadine Dorries in charge of the culture department. And people in the BBC have seen the writing on the wall for 20 years and they're terrified that at the next round that they will be abolished because that's the intention. They'll probably abolish, they'll probably sell off Channel 4 first to the billionaire class 
so we lose that. And they've been very good at holding the government to account. And the writing's on the wall for the BBC, whether it's in three, four, five or ten years, if we continue to have a, a Tory government. And well, we haven't. And that brings us to a point where we, we didn't really cover the power. We, we talked about the power of the media to set the Overton window. I thought, well, we haven't really looked and examined so far in this conversation is the political power, direct political power. And what I mean by that is there hasn't been a general election won in the United Kingdom for nearly 50 years without the backing of Rupert Murdoch's papers. There hasn't been a referendum in the United Kingdom that the side that Rupert Murdoch backed hasn't won. And if you think through what that means, it actually means that that's why Boris Johnson isn't our prime minister. He's our appointed prime minister. And he knows that if he, if he actually pursues policies that are opposed by those three men, he'll be thrown out of office. It has happened in Australia. And this is very relevant to climate and Extinction Rebellion, because if you look at three of the leading carbon emitters are Australia, United Kingdom and, and America. Between them, a huge amount of the world's investments in fossil fuels come from those three countries and a, huge, a significant amount of the emissions. Australia, uh, as I said, Murdoch has 70% of the media. He has thrown out three prime ministers because they started taking action on climate. Not just left-wing, centre-left prime ministers, but right-wing prime ministers. Turnbull started trying to take action in the last government on climate. And Murdoch came over, read the Riot Act to his newspapers, and they turned their guns on Turnbull for 10 days over the fact he was taking action on climate. 10 days. 10 days later, there was a coup within the governing um, Liberal Party. Turnbull was thrown out and what I call the coal man Morrison was installed. The geopolitical implications of that are now reverberating to this day. Last week, the OECD met and one of the biggest challenges they had was to actually name a phase out day for coal, date for coal and to ban all new coal powered, powered, powered stations. An essential first step if we're going to get to net zero. The only thing they adopted was um, that they would ban the funding of foreign power stations. So there's no deadline for continuing to burn coal, to end burning coal, and there's no deadline or, or ban on building new power coal st power stations in their own countries. Who was the lead actor on that? Murdoch's appointed prime minister, Morrison from Australia. And that broke the momentum leading into COP. And so therefore, that is an example of how media power translates into political power, translates into global negotiations on climate. The same happened in America. Murdoch was, uh, sorry, Trump is a product of the Murdoch um, culture. And 10, 15 years ago, the Republican Party was pro-climate action but based on, on market forces. 
And that's why the Kyoto Treaty, God, that must be, what, 25 years ago, the Kyoto Treaty was based on Republican principles of using carbon pricing. The world wanted to go down regulation, but America insisted on carbon pricing because it was a, a market mechanism that the Republican Party supported, supposedly. Of course, Clinton and uh, Kyoto agreed that, and then, of course, the Republicans vetoed it in, 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 the, in the Senate anyway. But it was a Republican mechanism. And what happened, John McCain, as presidential candidate, was pro-climate action. People forget this. The main presidential candidate for the Republican Party was pro-climate action. But Fox News and the Wall Street Journal went to war in coalition with the think tanks, with the uh, PR agencies and with the oil corporations. And they made it impossible for any ambitious Republican to stand on a platform that included climate action. And that's how it led to Trump withdrawing from the Paris Agreement, led to massive slowdown in the implementation of the Paris Agreement, led it into a wobble for around three or four years. The Overton window for Republicans had closed. They had turned it from a, a window open to market responses to climate to climate is, is a farce. It's, it's a commie plot. It's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's the socialist agenda taking over. It's going to bankrupt America that sort of language and may, he made it into a left-right culture war which is a disaster because what we need of course is left and right to unite to save us all. I, I feel very passionately that it's very important for those on the left or centre-left to actually reach out to the right and to try and bring them on board with this um, existential threat that we all face. And even as we were speaking Prime Minister Boris Johnson was flying straight from the COP where he just talked impressively about the urgency of climate action, to London to dine with his climate sceptic friends, journalists from the right-wing Daily Telegraph. So did Johnson really mean anything he just said at the COP? So we have a Prime Minister, finally, you know, Boris went to COP giving a quite a good speech in terms of the urgency. He's talking about one minute midnight. It's a good, you know, really urgent. He's finally speaking from the right um, hymn sheet on that front. However, behind that prime minister, there's a government not implementing anything. And the key person for implementing action on climate would be our chancellor, i.e. the treasury. However, around, so around six months ago, Boris started ramping up a bit of the um, rhetoric because he's a president of the COP, United Kingdom's president of the COP. So he gave speeches last year, last autumn, during the winter and in the spring outlining some small modest steps that the United Kingdom would take to net zero. I mean, a disastrously bad plan, but it was a plan. It was Boris's famous, or I would call infamous, 10-point plan, most of which was based on technology and was most based on investments that would come, if they came to any fruition, would be in the 2040s, 2050s, far too late for any real action. But they were taken talking about phasing out car, um, fossil fuel cars, fossil fuel um, boilers at some stage in the future and it was called the net zero agenda. So then around in the middle of the summer, um, the Global Warming Pulse Foundation was another think tank, Fair UK, another think tank, went on the warfare and there's a real around three weeks blitz in the UK media about how awfully expensive net zero was, how what a terrible thing Boris was doing and they kept 
blatantly saying to Boris, you can go to COP, you can make these statements, but don't you dare implement them. I mean, literally said it in black and white. It's okay to have the rhetoric, but don't you dare implement it. And parallel to that, there was a huge double page spreads, very clearly stating to Rishi Sunak, don't you dare put this into the budget. And the implication was very clear that if Boris Johnson kept on with this madcap net zero climate action and Rishi Sunak didn't take action on, on net zero, they were literally between the lines saying we can get we can replace Mer um, Johnson with Sunak just like they replaced Turnbull with Morrison. So that was very clearly happened this summer. Nobody wrote about it in the media. And then subsequent to that, that went on for around three or four weeks. And there but how, how do you know about this, Donica? I'm, 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 I've been involved in politics in Britain for 30 years. I'm a former deputy chair of, of the Liberal Democrats. I saw from the inside how the media blackmails, threatens, twists arms of what political part, entire political parties do. I've seen it, and so therefore, having experienced it, I can see it happening today, and I can interpret it, and it's very clear. The smoke signals were very clear. It's certainly true that um, at a certain point, not that long ago, I, I remember listening to various people saying, and I could see it, oh, I wonder if Rishi's going to be our next PM. So obviously they were getting the message, but not necessarily in the critical way that you were. But you know, they were getting the message they were meant to get. Absolutely. And that's their power. They're kingmakers. They really are kingmakers and they're king destroyers. They're regicides as well as kingmakers. So, so that happened during the summer. Then it went quiet. Then Rishi went to the Conservative Party conference before COP. Didn't make one mention of the climate emergency, despite all of the reports that had come this summer, the disastrous extreme weather, the reports from the Chatham House, the reports from the IPCC, the reports from the World Medical, like disastrous reports saying that we are in code red from the United Nations. He didn't mention it. That's, that's unprecedented. That's unprecedented. That's unprecedented, I'd say, for 20 years by any chancellor in the United Kingdom. And then, even more importantly, he came to the budget didn't mention it once. Didn't mention it once. That was the week before COP. He cut fuel duty again for the 10th time. So cars are going to be cheaper. And he cut aviation duty. So aviation duty is going to be cheaper. So he has obeyed his masters in the newspapers. So if Boris goes out on a limb and tries to implement any of this net zero stuff, he's ready and waiting and has auditioned and has passed the test to be an anti-net zero chancellor. And that's how this is, that's what's, why is this important? Because other leaders saw what Boris is doing. So what Boris is able to do is lie about, what, how, about our commitment to climate action, lie about the steps we will take as a country, and they see behind the scenes, we're doing the opposite. We're opening oil fields, oil fields gas fields, airports, roads, we're cutting duties on, on aviation, we're cutting duties on fossil fuels. So if I'm Modi, or if I'm Turkey, or if I'm Saudi Arabia, I go, yeah, I'll promise 2050, I'll promise 2060. It doesn't matter, because look at Boris, he's lying through his teeth. 
because it, that is what the media are actually doing in this country. And that's, that hasn't got implications for this country, but it has global implications because it's seriously damaged the momentum of the COP process. The most important thing to remember about the United Kingdom is, is, is that we're like, we're like, a, <laughs> we're like a, a publican. So the publican has actually looked after, he's actually gone teat, he's actually halved his own alcohol consumption. But the United Kingdom is a seller of alcohol. What do I mean by that? 15% of global investments in new fossil fuels come from the city of London. Two oil companies are investing hundreds of billions of pounds. Two British oil companies, Shell and BP, are investing so much money, it's twice the carbon emissions of the United Kingdom. And then we're over 50% of the global insurance market for fossil fuels, coal, oil and gas. And finally, we're a major centre for the PR agency that actually put huge amounts of effort through the media to get social permission and greenwashing for the banks, the fossil fuel banks, and for the um, fossil fuel corporations. So if you look at the United Kingdom as a whole, per person, we're probably 15 times more responsible than almost any country in the world because we are a massive center of the global fossil fuel industry that ne people never talk about. So when people talk about China, China is responsible for direct emissions, mainly because it, it, it it's, a, it's become the manufacturing center for the world. So they export a lot of their emissions. But the United Kingdom is a center of the investment industry, insurance industry and PR industry that actually runs and motors the fossil fuel industry across the planet. And so that's why we have a massive carbon footprint that's never attributed to us. This is so shocking. I'm, I'm speechless. And, you know, I read a lot about climate stuff and hear a lot about it. And You hear about China, China, is... China. <laughs> yeah. That's the oh. Overton window, because that's, yeah. that's what the toddlers say. We, no point in us, because we're only a tiny 1% of the global fossil fuel. Britain's is, is irrelevant. If we, even if we get rid of all our emissions, it won't make any difference because it's only a tiny 1%. It's China, China, China. That is the Overton window that you and I have been try, they've tried to box us into, and they have successfully boxed huge amounts of the public to, to take that farce. Another example of the power of the Overton window. So if I've understood what Donna had just said, we need to look not only at the UK's direct emissions, but also at the far more massive indirect effect that the UK's financial sector has on the climate through its support of the fossil fuel industry via investment, insurance and propaganda. How do these financiers get away with it? By using the media to manipulate the Overton window which is what frames the issues and opinions the public finds acceptable at any given time. So how can we activists open the Overton window wider to give the public better options? Well, I think um, something I found, I found after I was involved in national politics, I was very angry at the establishment not hearing my demands that they be truthful and be honest and transparent. But it's only when I came out is that I realized that actually Humans, human beings and organizations are resistant to change. 
and there is a reason for that. If we have uh, dramatic change in our lives every day of the week, we lose our home, we lose our family, we lose our life. It's not possible. So actually, in a healthy organism, you have to have stability. And but you, if you, but you also have to be open to change, and then you have to be open to radical change if there's an emergency. And how I try and get that across to people is, yeah, I don't know if you're, let's say you're a person's in a relationship, they're married, so they need to have stability for that relationship to survive. So that's the 70%. It's called a 70-25-5 theory. <coughs> but if they do the same thing every day and they never go, they always go same place on holiday, they always go same pub, they always have the same conversation, they never meet anybody different, the, their relationship dies. So there has to be always a renewal for a healthy relationship. And then finally, if there is, the relationship becomes abusive or violent, they either have to get help or they have to get out of there fast. So that applies to individuals, applies to couples, applies to organizations, applies to countries. And the, far, the higher you go up in complexity of, of organization, the more inbuilt there will be resistance to change. Because that's what protects the organism. So our job as environmentalists is to say we're in the 5% danger zone. And we have to say it is safe to run out of that burning house. That there isn't um, a, 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 an empty moat outside the door, there isn't a, a car going 100 miles per hour, there isn't bankruptcy, there isn't starvation. Because we're saying the current model is killing us. And they're saying, well, it's fed us, it's, it's, it's housed us, it's, it's, it's brought billions out of poverty, and you're saying there's something wrong with it? So that's what we have to remember is that's our role. We are the alarm ringers of that 5% and the resistance to us. And the media in some ways represents that resistance. That, because basically the billionaire class have benefited. They've seen how the current economic systems and structures and, and exploitative economy has actually enabled them to be wealthy, has society become richer every year for the last 100 years, but at a cost invisible that's destroying us. So if we're going to finish, I would just like to, to say something positive about what, what we can do about this. Ron, just be. Um, so I'm arguing that when whatever movement you're in, in, in the climate movement, whether you're in a lobbyist, whether you're a, a politician, whether you're a campaigner, whether you're a, a, an NGO, whenever you're doing any action, think, should we invite the media to this in terms of the decision makers, the editors, the owners? the decision makers or should we target them in as one of our targets to make remember that there is a fourth pillar of the movement that should be included so that's my first appeal to people in whatever organization they're in what are we doing that is actually addressing the fourth pillar to get it on our side then the second thing i would say to people is that think of what access to other kinds of media that do we have because media isn't just the the, the billionaire media it's the most important one but if you have a local council, they have, um, they may have buses that they have, um, uh, they may have buses, they have bus shelters, they have tube stations, they have train stations, they may have doctor surgeries, they have town halls, they have newsletters, they have um, their own charitable newsletters. There is a million ways where there are other media and to actually start getting the message out there about what people need to do in terms of radically cutting their own carbon emissions and who they need to lobby in their local community or government to make change.
or to lobby the media to take this on. You know, every media should, we should be asking every media organization to have on their front page a climate section, a button that says climate. And every, every media must train, train all of their journalists in every department on climate literacy so that we actually change the media. We can actually positive, even without the billionaire media, we can actually positively take huge amount of action with all the other forms of media to get us rolling and to win this battle. We've got to win the, the media to actually expand the open window so that my lifestyle is normal and it's not extreme. People regard the fact that I've got, you know, you know, that I don't buy new clothes, that I, my house is, is at 18 degrees, that I only heat one the room I'm in, I only light the room I'm in, that I cycle to work. They, they regard that as extreme. That's how, it, that's how the media will, will, will try and brand an eco-responsible lifestyle. I would argue any kind of lifestyle other than mine that actually trashes the planet, trashes future generations, that is, that is the definition of extremism. And that's what we need to do is to reverse through the Overton window, through our work with the media, to reverse what's extreme and what's socially normal so that we can actually adopt a lifestyle that's in line with saving the planet. It totally makes sense because we've been living in this kind of looking glass world that we've been, the picture we've been given and we need to, to walk back through the glass and see reality again. Absolutely. So thank you so much. That's very kindly. Thank you.